Welcome to Glasgow Evangelicals Podcast. Thanks for listening with us today. Our hope is that today's sermon equips you to live the gospel joyously. Come along with us as we learn to live the gospel together. One of the earliest accounts about Jesus of Nazareth, his life, death, and resurrection, was written by a man named Luke. We know it as the Gospel of Luke, but Luke continued the story in a second volume. Called the Book of Acts, and it's all about what Jesus continued to do after his resurrection. Acts begins with the disciples who are hanging out with Jesus, who's just come back to life, which is mind-blowing to imagine. And then for weeks, the risen Jesus kept teaching them about his upside-down kingdom, the new creation that he launched through his death and resurrection. This is exciting stuff, and the disciples are ready to go tell the world. But then Jesus tells them to wait and to stay in Jerusalem until they receive a new kind of power so they can be faithful witnesses to Jesus and his kingdom. Then he says that their mission is going to begin in Jerusalem, then move out to Judea and Samaria, and then from there out into the nations. It's like a road map for the whole book of Acts. Then the disciples saw Jesus enthroned as king of all creation. So the disciples wait, wondering when this power is going to come. And then comes the time of Pentecost. So this is an ancient Israelite festival during the early summer, and thousands and thousands of Jewish pilgrims would come back to Jerusalem from all over the world, all these different languages and cultures colliding in the city. And the disciples are together in a house, which is suddenly filled with rushing wind along with fire. Fire splinters off into tongues of fire hovering over people's heads. What's this all about? Yeah, so Luke is tapping into a repeated Old Testament theme. When God's presence showed up similarly at Mount Sinai, he made a covenant with Israel and gave them the Ten Commandments. Then later, when God's glory came in a pillar of fire, it filled the tabernacle when he came to live among them. That was just one pillar of fire, not many. Exactly. Luke's making an important point here. This is God's personal temple presence, God's spirit that was foretold by Israel's prophets. And now it's come to take up residence in the new temple of Jesus' body, that is, his people. They've become little mobile temples where God now dwells. And they start to tell stories about Jesus, but they're speaking in languages that they didn't know before, yet all the visitors can understand them. What's this all about? Well, Peter gets up to explain that this is the fulfillment of Israel's hopes based on the scriptures. God's plan was always to use the unified family of Abraham to bring peace and justice to the world. But the tribes of Israel had been scattered because of the exile. Now here at Pentecost, representatives from all of the tribes come back together and they're introduced to their Messiah, the crucified and risen Jesus, so they can now become the restored people of Israel. And thousands of them start following the way of Jesus. Which brings us to Luke's tale of two temples. So you've got the temple that Herod built in Jerusalem, where Jesus' disciples worship like the rest of the Israelites. But now there's also Jesus' temple, which consists of people. This temple's meeting together in homes all over Jerusalem, and they were approaching life in a radical new way. Right, think about it. Many of these pilgrims aren't even from Jerusalem, so they formed these new families, and they're all depending on each other. Yeah, people would sell their stuff, provide for the poor among them. They ate their meals together. They said their daily prayers together. They were learning from the apostles what it meant to live as if Jesus is the true king of the world. And it must have been exhilarating. 
But it wasn't all fun and games. Being God's temple is serious business, just like in the Old Testament. So you might know about that strange story in the book of Leviticus about two priests who disrespect God in the temple and then suddenly die. Well, Luke includes here a similar story of two disciples who dishonor God's spirit in this new temple, and they suffer a similar fate. So there's corruption in the community, but the bigger problem is coming from the outside. Yeah, from the other temple. Its leaders are threatened by this new messianic movement, and so they arrest the apostles, they try to stop them. And this brings us to the final story in the Jerusalem section of Acts. We're introduced to a new disciple, Stephen. Oh yeah, Stephen, he's on fire. He steps up as a leader among the disciples to serve the poor, and he would go to the temple courts to teach people about the way of Jesus. So the temple leaders arrest Stephen, and they find false witnesses to accuse him of dishonoring Moses and of being a terrorist who's threatening the temple. In response, Stephen gives this powerful speech about how predictable this whole situation was. Yeah, he retells the whole Old Testament story, highlighting characters like Joseph, Moses, and the prophets, people who are consistently rejected and persecuted by their own people. Israel's been resisting God's representatives for centuries, and so their rejection of Jesus and now of his followers is a rejection of God himself. They get angry, and they start to execute him by picking up rocks and smashing him to death. And as he's dying, he commits himself to the way of Jesus, to suffer because of the sins of others. He even cries out, Lord, don't hold the sin against them. This is basically what Jesus said at his death. Exactly. Stephen becomes the first martyr of the Jesus movement, with many more to come. But this persecution contains seeds of hope, which is why Luke introduces us to a new character here, a religious leader named Saul. He stands over Stephen's dead body and even approves of the whole thing. Wait, Saul, you mean the man who becomes the apostle Paul? Yes, Luke is showing how even this tragic murder can't stop Jesus' kingdom. And so many persecuted disciples scatter out of Jerusalem, and just as Jesus said, they head into Judea and Samaria. Now, the story of what happens there, that's what the next section of Acts is all about. going a, a little slower than I intended. <laughs> um, one thing I, f I forgot to mention, so I, I didn't lie to you earlier when I said that I was just waiting for things to start and I was sitting in my seat. Um, my, my yellow uh, tablet here had a note that we needed to um, pray for Steve Bell, um, Richard and Carrie Weens, it's Carrie's um, brother. Steve Bell used to have the mortuary here in town. He had a stroke. Um, and is, is in Billings, uh, Richard and Carrie are on their way there. And so I was asked to, to put that in our, our prayer section earlier, and I just, uh, I forgot because I didn't have this sheet in front of me, and so I apologize. And so we're going to pray in a minute, and we will, we will pray uh, for them as well. And then also, last week I forgot, like I was in the middle of, of teaching and I remembered uh, about version. And so uh, I'll tell you now, if you have a smartphone and you have the Bible app, you can open it up and, and um, what we're going to go through today will be in there. Mainly it's just a bunch of scripture because today uh, we're going from um, Acts chapter 6 verse 8 to Acts chapter 8 verse 1. And so we, we have quite a bit of reading to do together. And before we start this reading, I would like to um, just start in prayer, and we'll go from there. So please join me. Lord, we come to you again this morning, and um, we want to lift up uh, 
Steve Bell and the, the Weens family as they travel, and, and Lord, may you um, most importantly be glorified. Uh, Lord, we definitely ask for healing and your intervention, um, but Lord, what's most important is that you be glorified in all of it, and so um, those people that you're trying to reach through pain and suffering, uh, whether it's nurses, doctors, family members, relatives, Lord, may, uh, may you give the strength to those around them uh, to share you, to share the good news. And Lord, uh, can you offer healing um, if it is in your will. And then Lord, as we begin to uh, dive into the story of Stephen today, may uh, it be your word that's heard, may it be your message that's received, and may you prepare our hearts to receive it. In your holy name we pray, amen. Okay, so it's, we're going to start out just uh, with, with the verse that's, that's on these, uh, I don't know, these banners behind us, because this is, um, if, if you took the book of Acts and compiled it into one verse, this is the verse. This is, this is what um, you can relate every uh, message or story in Acts back to this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the outer ends of the earth. And so we start there, and then as I said, we have, we have quite a few verses to go through, um, starting in chapter 6. And so it's this, this section, I've got it broken up into uh, three parts. And we're going to read Acts chapter 6, verse 8, through Acts chapter 7, verse 1. And that will be um, the, arrest, um, the arrest and trial of Stephen. And then the, the next section um, is Acts chapter 7, verse 2 through verse 53. This is going to be the longest portion. So as, as you're prepared, um, this, will, this will be the longest portion of reading that I've ever been a part of in church. But um, this, this will be uh, the large section. And this is, this is Stephen's speech. Um, and then the third part is uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 54 through 8. Um, I have in the back of the bulletin 8.1a. Um, because it's just kind of the first part there, but um, 8-1, we'll just say 8-1. Um, so whenever you see the little, the little letters next to verses, that's another way to get to the address, just so you know. Um, when you see an A, it means the first half. If you see a B, it means the second half. And so if you're trying to quote a verse and, and the first and second, sometimes they don't exactly correlate, you can use A or B to kind of tell people the first half or the second half. And so that's what's there. Um, this is the third trial that we will see in the book of Acts. And, and I wanted to show this little video beforehand because it kind of gets us all um, caught up to speed. So the first seven chapters of Acts um, are, are, are the, the first section how Acts is broken up. And as I said last week, this is mainly still just kind of stuck in Jerusalem. And then um, the last two weeks that we've been talking is, is the beginning of it spreading out. Um, and it's not actually because of, of what we would consider uh, in modern day um, good reasons that it gets spread out. As you saw in the video, the reasons it gets spread out is because of persecution, um, hard times. And we're going to find out that it's because uh, Stephen dies. And so the first um, trial we see is the apostles uh, in, in chapter 4, verse 21. Um, it says that uh, they just get off with a warning. And then the second trial we see in chapter 5, verse 40, that the apostles get flogged. Um, 
whipped. There, there's a different things for flogging, but publicly punished in a physical manner, um, but, but still living when they're done. And then we get to this third trial of Stephen, and, and he is stoned to death. This, is, this trial ends in, in capital punishment. Uh, and so that, that's what we have here uh, as, as we get through, through Acts. Um, yeah, let's just, let's just start with our reading. And so we're going to start in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, and we'll read to uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Sicilia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom of the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, we heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused the people the elders, and the teachers of religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. The lying witnesses said, this man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. Stephen's the first non-apostle we see um, depicted in the Bible as, as performing miracles. And then last week, we talked about Stephen as one of the, the ones chosen. Um, they were having a problem with, with all of the widows being fed, and they wanted people to be appointed to be able to feed uh, both, the, um, both types of Jewish people because there were cliques going on, and some of them weren't being fed. And so they, they, they um, picked this group of people, and Stephen was the first one mentioned. And so when, when we look at these verses, we're going to see that um, they, they were de debating with Stephen because they, they were just mad at him for sharing Jesus in the, the temple and in the, the, the town of Jerusalem. And so they start debating with him, but then they realize that they can't stand up to the Holy Spirit. And so it may seem like this is just kind of one story just going straight through, but this might have been over the course of a couple days, definitely a couple hours, as maybe Stephen's brought before them, they debate a little bit, or maybe they ran into each other in the temple, and, and they're debating, and they cannot win any of the arguments. Um, and so uh, Stephen kind of goes off, and as he goes off, or they go off, whichever kind of happened in here, they find people to lie. And the cool thing I found in my studies is... Um, the Greek word hypobalo, I am definitely saying that Englishy, um, but hypobalo, which means to give people the words to say. And so the word that it uses there in the Greek, hyperbalo, means that they gave these, these liars, these um, witnesses, the exact words to say about Stephen. It's not that they just said, hey, they found a couple people. Can you come lie about this guy? No, they, they didn't want to do it themselves. They found some other people. They got those people and gave them the exact words to say. And so there's a couple things. And just so you know, on the back of the bulletin, I'm going to do a side, side note here. On the back of the bulletin, these, these are due um, Thursday morning, Wednesday night, um, uh, usually. And so when, when you see this, I'm going to give you some insight into at least my life, and I'm probably going to call Seth out as well. But when you see that there's not like blanks to fill in, and it's just kind of like, 
this is as far as I was, okay? When, when they were due, um, I had the three sections put, up, put in there, but I just, I just, I don't know. I just didn't have the full message yet. And so what I like to say is I'm now giving you the freedom to write any notes that you would like in these sections. I'm not going to control you. Um, but really what it meant is I wasn't fully prepared by Thursday when they were due, and so you got the best of what I had. Um, and so on the back of the bulletin, you are free to write whatever you would like back there um, in, in, that, in those, those sections appointed. Um, so anyway, to get, to get back to it, there's, the reason I said that is because these three points would have been in the notes for you, but they're not there. And so um, the, the lies that they told is that he speaks against the holy temple. The second lie is that he speaks against Moses and the laws that were set up. And then the third lie was that Jesus would destroy the temple and change the laws of Moses. So you have these three lies that um, the, the witnesses told. And what I want to point out is, first of all, that, that they're not like, like blatant, obvious lies. Because if you know the gospel and you know God's word, well, you know that God isn't really against the temple, but the temple has changed since Jesus. As we saw in the movie, it's no longer this building, it is, it is us, right? It's no longer this temple that was built, this tent that traveled around with them, it's this, this sacred area. We become the, the mobile temple. And so, and so technically, he speaks against the holy temple is just kind of a perversion of the truth. It's just, a, it's just a slight perversion. And then you get the second thing as well, that he speaks against the laws of Moses. Well, if you know the gospel, if you know what Jesus said, he said that I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so when, when you hear this lie, you're like, well, I mean, he kind of spoke against the law, but he really didn't. He came to fulfill the law. Jesus believed every word of the, the law. The, the apostles believe every word of the law. They just know that Jesus came and fulfilled said law. And then I like this, this third lie. Sounds bad to say I like it. I don't like it. But this third lie takes it, the blame off of Stephen and puts it solely on Jesus. Now, we're five years later from the beginning of Acts 2 to now, up to five years, three to five years later, they believe that this is around Pentecost again, and, and we get this bringing Jesus back into the lie. It's not just Stephen on trial anymore. They wanted to make sure that Jesus was back on trial. And so they, they kind of switch it and say, he's saying stuff that Jesus said. And we get that all of the time, right? Like in our lives, he said that you said, or she said that he said that he heard from her that you said that. And so now they're saying, well, Stephen, Stephen's talking about what Jesus said. And Jesus said that he was going to tear down the temple, which is, goes back to the first lie, and that he wants to change the laws of Moses. And so the temple and Moses, and then they're saying, but Jesus, he's saying that Jesus confirms these two first lies. And Jesus will destroy the temple and change the laws of Moses. But Jesus didn't say that. So now Jesus is on trial again. And then the last part of these verses we just read um, says, at this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as angels. Mm. As bright as an angels. As bright as an angels. When we, when we, we can go back to Exodus um, chapter... Chapter 30, hold on, let me make sure I got it right. Chapter 34, 
verse 29, when Moses came down Mount Sinai carrying the two stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, inscribed with the terms of the covenant, he wasn't aware that his face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. So when Aaron and the people of Israel saw the radiance of Moses' face, they were afraid to come near him. When you, when you, when you hear this about Stephen, your mind should go to, to Moses in the Old Testament. And so they're bringing up Moses in the Old Testament, and then, and then God, through, through his amazingness, is like, ha, you want to talk about Moses? Look at his face, dude. All right, look at his face. And so there, there can be speculation here. There can be speculation that his face actually wasn't like, like bright and shiny as Moses's was, where it was like scaring people. Um, but I, I choose not to believe that. I believe that it, it looked very similar to Moses. And so, and so in this moment, we find God confirming Stephen, is what, what I would say. But even if we just said, if we, if we wanted to throw that out and say there was no miracle here of, of God's presence with Stephen, um, and we just wanted to say that his face was like an angel, well, he's in front of the same people that, that murdered Jesus, the same people that have done the last few trials and flogged people and warned them and said not to speak, and the same people that are causing an uproar in Jerusalem. And in this moment, he has the face of an angel. And I want to think, all of us, just for a moment, think about the last time you were in a heated argument with someone. At any moment, would a witness to said argument say, and Brian's face was that of an angel? <laughs> well, no. No. We, we picture like, like these, um, these paintings of of angels with the wings and the, the, I don't know why they have a bow and arrow, but you know, like in my mind, they have a bow and arrow, maybe it's Cupid, right? We get these like cute little baby faces. Whenever we think of an angel, and it, I, I'm sure it was for them back then, for Luke while he was telling the story, retelling the story, the face of an angel is not like angry. It's not scared. You gotta think, angels know for a fact who God is, what he does, and what he can do. And so the face of an angel would be extremely confident. The face of an angel would more than likely be peaceful. In a time of, of extreme accusations and finger pointing, he's just sitting there all angelic-like. Now we're, gonna, now we're gonna do some reading. And so I know I said it was through 7-1, and so verse 7-1, then the high priest asked Stephen, are these accusations true? And so that finishes our first section. And then we get to this section. So this is Stephen's answer. The face of an angel. This was Stephen's reply. Brothers, fathers, listen to me. A glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So Abraham left the land of Chaldeans and lived in Haran until his father died. Then God brought him here to the land you, where you now live. But God gave him no inheritance here, not even one square foot of land. God did promise, however, that eventually the whole land would belong to Abraham and his descendants, even though he had no children yet. God also told him that his descendants would live in a foreign land where they would be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. 
but I will punish the nation that enslaves them, God said, and in the end, they will come out and worship me here in this place. God also gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision at the time. So when Abraham became the father of Isaac, he circumcised him on the eighth day, and the practice was continued when Isaac became the father of Jacob, and when Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs of the Israelite nation. These patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph, and they sold him to be a slave in Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles, and God gave him favor before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God also gave Joseph unusual wisdom, so the Pharaoh appointed him governor over all Egypt and put him in charge of the palace. But a famine came upon Egypt and Canaan. There was great misery, and our ancestors ran out of food. Jacob heard there was still grain in Egypt, so he sent his sons, our ancestors, to buy some. The second time they went, Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers, and they were introduced to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent for his father Jacob and all his relatives to come to Egypt, 75 persons in all. So Jacob went to Egypt. He died there, as did our ancestors. Their bodies were taken to Shechem and buried in the tomb Abraham had bought for a certain price from Hamor's sons in Shechem. As the time drew near, when God would fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. But then a new king came in the throne of Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. This king exploited our people and oppressed them, forcing parents to abandon their newborn babies so they would die. At that time, Moses was born a beautiful child in God's eyes. His parents cared for him at home for three months. When they had to abandon him, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own son. Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in both speech and action. One day when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his relatives, the people of Israel. He saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite, so Moses came to the man's defense and avenged him, killing the Egyptian. Moses assumed his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them, but they didn't. The next day, he visited them again and saw two men of Israel fighting. He tried to be a peacemaker. Men, he said, you are brothers. Why are you fighting each other? But the men in the wrong pushed Moses aside. The man in the wrong pushed Moses aside. Who made you ruler and judge over us? He asked. Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard that, he fled the country and lived as a foreigner in the land of Midian. There his two sons were born. Forty years later, in the desert near Mount Sinai, an angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the, at the sight. As he went to take a closer look, the voice of the Lord called out to him, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses shook with terror and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groans and have come down to rescue them. Now go, for I am sending you back to Egypt. So God sent back the same man as people had previously rejected when they demanded, who made you ruler and judge over us? Through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush, God sent Moses to, their, to be their ruler and savior. By means of many wonders and miraculous signs, he led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and through the wilderness for 40 years. Moses himself told the people of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Moses was with our ancestors the assembly of God's people in the wilderness when the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And there Moses received life-giving words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. They rejected him and wanted to return to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us some gods who can lead us, for we don't know what has become of this Moses who brought us out of Egypt. So they made an idol shaped like a calf and they sacrificed to it, celebrated over this thing they had made. Then God turned away from them and abandoned them to serve the stars of heaven as their gods. In the book of the prophets, it is written, 
Was it to me you were bringing sacrifices and offerings during those 40 years in the wilderness, Israel? No, you carried your pagan gods, the shrine of Molech, the star of your god, Raphan, and the images you made to worship them. So I will send you to exile as far away as Babylon. Our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan God had shown to Moses. Years later, when Joshua led our ancestors in battle against the nations that God drove out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into their new territory, and it stayed there until the time of King David. David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. It was Solomon who actually built it. However, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asked the Lord. Could you build me such a resting place? Did my hands make both heaven and earth? You southern stubborn people, you are heathen of the heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did and so do you. Name one prophet, prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law even though you received it from the hands of angels. We made it. Mm. I want to remind you, this is, this is a speech. But through the whole thing, Stephen has like, Three sentences that are his. Everything else is just the Old Testament that he is regurgitating to them. So Stephen answers the question by quoting stories in the Old Testament of many of the prophets and fathers of faith. The first thing he does is denounce the second lie that was speaking against Moses. And so, and so you can see that that. He, he builds from the Old Testament to Moses and he kind of, he denounces. He, he's talking about Moses. He believes in Moses. He's, he's sharing this story about Moses. And so if they're saying that he's speaking against Moses, well, he's, he's now in his speech confirming everything that Moses did for the Israelites. And then it, 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 it almost gets to the point where he's comparing the trial that, 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 that went on with, with Jesus, that's going on with him, and the trials that, that Moses went through. He's kind of like foreshadowing all of this. And so Moses was, was introduced to the people, and the people rejected him. And then God said, no, go back to the people, and, and, and Moses was their savior from slavery. And Jesus was introduced to the people and was rejected. And then God sent him back. And so we see this, this foreshadowing, this unique thing that, that only God can do throughout history of, of using people to, to foreshadow Jesus coming. Acts 7.37, Moses himself told the people of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. It's a great sentence, right? <laughs> so, the guy you're saying that I'm speaking bad about, well, he's, he's talking about the third lie that you guys said. So Moses told us that Jesus was coming. You're now saying that Jesus speaks against Moses, that I speak against Moses, but really, this is all just biblical, guys. Come on, listen. 
But I think that this is a good argument up to this point where he's, he's building this case that, that he knows the Old Testament. He believes the things that they believe and that, that like, like this, is, this is good. It's just friends talking about the Bible. Then Stephen points out how they, we, have been dishonoring the temple throughout history. And so then he goes into this, this yeah, they had the temple, but just like you destroying Jesus, like they, they dishonored the temple constantly. Almost like saying, have you read the Old Testament? Like, like did you read the stories of our people? Previous? You're accusing me of the same thing that people have been accused of this whole time, dishonoring the temple. God himself says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? And so if you are mad at me about the temple stuff, like God says the same thing I'm saying about the temple. And then in verses uh, 51 through 53, you stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. The face of an angel, the hands of an angel. <clears throat> confirming, confirming, but if you write anything down about Stephen's speech, it was that he knew the Old Testament really well. This is the same way I love preaching sermons. I love starting just at the beginning of the Bible to build all the way to wherever we are in the Bible. I like, I like to build that so we all can remember that God's been the same this entire time. So Stephen's doing the same thing. He's like, hey, don't, don't forget that this God that you worship, he's been the same throughout history. His unfolding plan continues to go, but, but none of it is, is wrong. And then we get to the, the last part of the verses that we're going through here, and it starts in verse 54 through 8.1. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. He saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Okay. This isn't just a good Bible story. What we've just read is a depiction of history. This is a story told that actually happened. What we, what we tend to do, and I'm, I'm probably the most guilty, is as we're reading through the Bible, because we remember that it's 2,000 years old, we, 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 we put it in this Christian cloud up here. 
I'm not talking about like the cloud where all your stuff is stored. I'm talking about like, like this lofty place, this, this, this thing that's kind of unattainable, that's up there. It's, yeah, we believe it's true, but is it real? Is it kind of not? And we put it up here. And I want you to, to like, for a minute, like bring this to real life. Stephen was stoned. I tried to find some, some real stories on YouTube of stoning. Please don't ever search on YouTube for that. Um, not because you're gonna get a bunch of people smoking pot, but because there's actually videos of people being stoned and it's gruesome. It's definitely not anything that I wanted to show here. I only watched like one or two because I was hoping that it like actually wasn't, like there was just kind of clickbait that the little thumbnail was and that it was just somebody depicting the story of, of watching one of these, these horrible acts happen. What was supposed to happen? What was supposed to happen? If, if, this, um, if, if these people that were putting Stephen on trial actually went through what legally they were supposed to do, they wouldn't have even been the ones um, to, to throw the rocks at him. It's supposed to be the, the witnesses, the ones accusing that do that. And so it should have been um, the ones that they had lying. But the way that, that it's depicted to us throughout history is that when someone was stoned and it was a punishment that was just, and you know, a murderer or a pedophile or, or a rapist or something like that, when, when they needed to be stoned, they took them to a cliff and they pushed them off the cliff. And if that did not kill them, they, they then took a boulder, pushed that off the cliff. And if that didn't work, they got another boulder. And that's, that's how stoning should have happened legally. But we don't see that here. We don't see that. That's not what's depicted. We see a crime of passion. Verse 57, then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. Okay, taking this off for just a second. La, 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 I'm not listening, I'm not listening. Same argument I used to have when I was three. You took my G.I. Joe. La, 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 I can't hear you. La, la, la. And then, and then as three-year-olds seeking vengeance, I would then probably throw something at my brother. Right? <laughs> what the Pharisees do? La, 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 I'm not listening. I'm not listening. Yaga! says that they pulled him out of, out of town to do this, and that was, that was the tradition, was that when you were punishing somebody, you definitely didn't do it in the, the sacred town, but you, you pulled them outside so they couldn't die within the walls. So they pulled him out, and they threw rocks at him until he was dead. It's out of anger. It shouldn't have, it shouldn't have been carried out like this, and it, it definitely isn't justice. And then, we, and then we find Saul 
Saul's mentioned twice. In verse 58, it says, his accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And so as they're getting ready to throw rocks, you don't want your, your precious uh, robes that you use in the temple that are all nice and pretty to get dirty. They're also gonna be in, uh, they're gonna like hold you back, right? And so when, when we're playing baseball or anything like that, we short sleeves, things. So they took their robes off and, and what we're assuming from this, what the scholars say is the reason they set them at Saul's feet is because he was kind of the authority there. It was kind of out of respect. That's just speculation. It doesn't say that in the scripture. It could be that he was the youngest and so that the, they just said, hey, watch our coats while we go do this awesomeness. You don't get to be a part of it. Um, we're, we're not really sure. And so, you know, you can make your own assumptions there. But then in verse eight, it says, Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. And so it's important for Luke to set this up in the story because Acts chapter nine, one of my favorite chapters uh, in the Bible, um, is going to depict Saul's conversion from Saul to Paul. Um, we later find out that Paul writes 13 books of the New Testament. 13 books that we use in church today, that we quote, that we hang on walls written by Saul, who was present at the first stoning, the, 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 the first martyr. And then it is important to also note that, that it, it was pointed out in the movie, but in, um, or in the video we showed, verse 59, as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In verse 60, he fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And so as he's bludgeoned to death by rocks, his reaction when he has the face of an angel is to, to plead on their behalf. I can't even imagine. And so here's where, here's where we get to the, the meat of today. And it's based on how Stephen died, how should we live? Based on how Stephen died, how should we live? So last week we know that Stephen was put in charge of distribution of food to widows. Maybe not put in charge, one of, one of several men put in charge of, of dis distributing food and funds within the church community um, especially that to, to widows in need. And that's what he gets stoned for, giving too much food to single women. No, no. He gets stoned for preaching the word. He gets killed for sharing the gospel in the temple. And so the first thing that we can take from this is that we are all preachers. We are all teachers. We are all asked to share God's word, to share the gospel. I don't know if your job is lawyer, banker, drive-through window attendant, car salesman, farm equipment salesman, farmer, mother, teacher, your first job is preacher. 
One, one more verse, and it's the only verse that we're going to actually put up on the, the screen here that's outside of, of Acts here. And it's Romans chapter 10. It was um, one of the last verses we went over in, in Real Church. Um, but it's verses 13 to 15. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless somebody tells them? And how can anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring the good news. In order to receive salvation, in order to Believe in Christ. In Romans 10, 9, and 10, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. It's your heart. It's your heart. It's our hearts. There are two billion people on this planet that don't even have a, they don't, they've never heard the name of Jesus. What a, what a lot of us do when we think about that is say, well, God will take care of them. If you believe the Bible, if you believe Romans 10, 9, and 10, they have to hear the word. They have to hear the word. And God is not, I don't think any of us in this room read the word on a cloud one morning when we woke up. There's two types of, of revelation. There's general revelation that every person on the face of this planet knows that there is a God just because they were born. It's a miracle to be born. It's a miracle to live on this planet. It's a miracle to see the sun rise, to see the sun set. And all of the things that God does in our life, we cannot deny that there is a God. But clearly, Stephen knew that belief in a God was not enough. Moses knew that belief in a God was not enough. Jesus knew that belief in a God was not enough. Belief in Jesus is what makes us Christian. Belief in Jesus is what saves us. Confessing with your mouth what you believe in your heart in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is what saves. There's nowhere in the Bible that says if someone has a really cool dream that God provided for them about Jesus, that they will be saved. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says that God is going to take these two billion people in the year 2019 and save them himself. There's nowhere in the Bible that says that. Yes, there are some amazing things that go on around the world where people do have dreams of Jesus. And then when someone comes and they tell them about Jesus, they go, I dreamt about him. I've been waiting. I've been waiting to hear because I had a dream. But you know what? They weren't saved because of the dream. They were saved because of the person that confirmed the dream. How can they hear if no one tells them? 
Point two, Stephen was calm facing his accusations. This is a small point. We're going to just go over it real quickly. He had the face of an angel. And I feel that a lot of times we don't feel that that is, is a necessary means in sharing the gospel, but it absolutely is. We will denounce people. We will tell them about their horrible sins that they're doing in their life. We'll say that we won't do their wedding. But do we do it with the face of an angel? Do we do it with this calm and peace and understanding that, that the most important thing in life is salvation, is eternity, is Jesus Christ? Or do we do it angrily because they don't believe the same thing we believe? So think about our lives on social media, our arguments that we have in life, and remember the Holy Spirit. Point three. Last week, when we, when, when we spoke, we said that, that when the church is distributing God's word and distributing food and funds, the church will grow. And so that was the point that we ended on, is that if we get God's word out and we, we, we distribute food and funds and we share, and the message that we're sharing with the world is the message that actually happens, then the, the church will grow. And so in church growth, we find leaders die. And so if you look at the bottom of the bulletin, there's a quote. And so the first thing I have to say is that I, I put C.S. Lewis. That was wrong. It's not C.S. Lewis. Um, and so the, the, I went back to reread the quote just to make sure I had it right. And it actually said unknown. It said unknown. And so C.S. Lewis isn't quoted with this. And so I just want to make sure that you had that right. But let's read this. Whenever the true message of the cross is abolished, the anger of hypocrites and heretics ceases, and all things are in peace. This is a sure token that the devil is guarding the entry to the house and that the pure doctrine of God's word has been taken away. The church, then, is in the best state when Satan assaileth it on every side, both with subtle slights and outright violence. And likewise, it is in the worst state when it is most at peace. When the church is healthy and it's growing, it's also attacked. And so here's the thing. We have to overcome this thought in our head that if things are easy, it's because God is blessing it. Let me say that again. You have to get it out of your head that if things are easy, that means God is blessing it. That's heresy. Yes, sometimes God does make things easy in our life. He provides finances. He provides food. He provides a way. He provides a job. But don't take peace and easiness as acceptance from God. Please don't relate those things. Because then when things are hard and things are tough, when people are dying, when people are sick, you think it's a not blessing. You, do we honestly think that sitting there watching Stephen be stoned, that Luke was like, yep, God's not blessing Stephen. Huh, probably had a bunch of sin in his life. He needs to repent. We're gonna pray for safe travels for Stephen. 
No. No, Luke knew that this, this meant that God's word was going to spread. And when I say church, I want to make sure that we all remember that the church isn't this building. The church isn't a group of, of pastors and staff members and councils. The church is you. The church is us. The church is people. The temple is no longer a temple. We are the temple. The Holy Spirit lives within us, and the church is you. And so it is of utmost importance that when we say when the church is healthy, when you are healthy, you will spread the word. The people that are around you that believe will grow and you may have some pain involved in that. And so when we spoke last week and we said when the church is distributing God's word and food and funds, it's going to grow. Replace church with you. When you are in God's word and sharing it, when you're distributing food and funds to those around you that do not know God's word and that those that do know God's word, the people around you that believe in Christ are going to grow. But there is a chance that there's going to be pain associated with that. And so we know the fourth and final point is we know Saul turns into Paul. We know that now, because we live 2,000 years later, that the church is now billions strong. There's still billions to go, but it's billions. It grew from a few hundred to a few thousand to billions. And the question that I hope that we're all going to ask is would either of those things happen without Stephen's death? Would Saul be Paul if he hadn't witnessed Stephen's death? How important was watching the first martyr's death in the conversion from Saul to Paul. Do you think that if Stephen knew that one person would be saved, that one person witnessing his stoning, his trial, his angelic face, do you think he would have still gone through with it? What if he knew that that person would be the writer of the majority of the New Testament? Oh, then it becomes easier. <laughs> what if he knew that later two billion people in the year 2019 would be Christians and call upon the name of Jesus Christ? Well, yeah. The problem is, is he didn't know at that point. What did he die for? He died for the gospel. There's a lot of lies some of them slightly twisted in this world today. Some of them that we may agree with in our own lives about the gospel. Do you, do we, know the gospel well enough to even know what those lies are? He died with the peace of an angel. He died so that we would know the truth. And get this, after he died, so did Peter, so did Mark, so did Matthew, so did Nathan, so did Thomas. So did Paul. All martyred. The only apostle we know that wasn't martyred was John. Died of 
old age after many attempts at being martyred. Some of them martyred by stoning. Some of them martyred by crucifixion upside down. James, we did a study on James in, in Real Church one morning, and, and in my studies I found that James was actually, they tried to stone him the right way, meaning they pushed him off of a tall tower. And when he fell to the ground, he didn't die. They didn't have any big boulders on top of the tower, so they had to go down. When they got down there, they found that James was praying for them. James also, they said he looked kind of like a camel, and I'm not making fun of him. They said that he prayed so much that his knees were calloused. And if you see a camel, like it, the knees go out like this, right? They said that the James looked like that. And he was pushed off the tower, and when they, when they got down there to finish off the job, he was praying for them. And since, Stephen, there have been many martyrs of our faith. I've done a few studies in, in the history of the church, but one of the bloodiest times, is not the most, but one of the most bloodiest times was during the reign of Queen Mary. They called her Bloody Mary. And the, the king before her, I think it was Edward VIII, um, I could be wrong on that, but the king before her was okay having Protestants. So there was Catholics and there was Protestants. The Catholics believed in the transubstantiation of Christ, meaning the, the Catholics believed and still believe that the, the actual presence of Christ is in the blood and wine. And through that, by taking the blood and wine, you become more saved. An act that you do works more towards your salvation aside from just belief alone. Mary killed 280 because they would not say that Christ was literally transubstantiated in the bread and wine. 280 Christians died because they would not say, no, Christ isn't really in that bread. <laughs> if someone came up to you today and said, admit, Christ is in the bread, would we even know that that's an argument we should have? Would we be okay just saying, yeah, I mean, believe what you want to believe, homie. You do you, it's okay. There's a book, um, it's free online. It's John Fox's Book of Martyrs. Recounts hundreds, if not thousands of martyrs, just in the 1500s alone, that died for very similar things. And then um, one that I wanted to, to point out too is in October 2015, Community College in Oregon, 10 people died in that college. One of them being the gunner, nine of them being Christians because he lined them up on a wall and one at a time stood them up and said, what do you believe in? And if they said that they were Christian or they believed in Jesus, he shot them in the head. If they mentioned some other religion or the lack of religion, he shot them in the leg. Nine Christians were killed and seven were injured. Today, martyrs are killed around the world for their faith in India, China, Africa, the Middle East. Some of them even stoned in the same way Stephen was. Some even worse. Some just imprisoned. And so our question is to ponder today. I'm going to invite the, the worship band to come back up and, and close us.
Do we know our faith enough? Do we, do we know God's word enough? Do we, do we know this enough to die for it? Do we know this enough to even have a legitimate argument with someone about this? And not only do we know it, but is it in our heart? Do we believe it? Do we have the faith? Are you willing to die for it? It's a hard question as a pastor to ask because I think a lot of people dismiss that question. Are you willing to die for your faith? Well, Brian, that's asking a lot. Is it? The entire New Testament is full of people confirming that death is the best thing that can happen to us Christians. If we truly believe in salvation and eternity, this life is just holding us away from the one God that can save us. And I don't think a lot of us as we leave today in Glasgow, Montana, are gonna have an opportunity to die for our faith. It could happen. But I think we, we can get these lofty dreams and say, okay, now I'm gonna go somewhere where it, there's a chance I could die. And there's been many times I've thought, man, I wanna go to North Korea. I wanna go to parts of India and Africa and the Middle East where, where they've never heard the gospel. And I wanna be that person. But I think God's gonna want us to be the person willing to just walk across the office. To walk across the street. But what could happen if we were willing to die for it? What if you knew that dying for the gospel in the next year, in the next year you are going to be asked to die for the gospel. What if you knew it would save one soul? Would it be worth it? What if you knew that two billion more people, 2,000 years from now, because of what you started by dying for your faith? But ultimately, the thing that's worth it is if you die for your faith and in your heart you believe and you've confessed in your mouth, you know that in the next moment, you will be held by a savior that says, well done, my good and faithful servant. I know you. And he's gonna look to God and say, I know Brian. And so any hard conversations that we could have in the next day or this next six day mission until we meet again next Sunday, remind ourselves that this is menial. This is so small compared to an eternity held by our savior. Are you willing to stand up for Christ today? Let's pray. Lord, may uh, your word ring true in our lives. Lord, we never want to feel like, like we're, we're failures and that we're just horrible Christians and Lord, I know that that is not the message that you are sending today, Lord. You are saying that, that through your Holy Spirit, when the power comes upon us, we will be your witnesses. 
And Lord, this is encouraging. Lord, may we be your witnesses. Lord, may we be your witnesses. No matter the cost, because we understand the gain. Lord, may we be your witnesses. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us again for another sermon of the GEC podcast. Connect with us at GlasgowEC.com or every Sunday morning at 10 here in Glasgow, Montana. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes because this helps us share the word with more people. See you next week.